0: So I was reading an online message board uh, on Christian spirituality recently where readers could pose questions and get answers from faith leaders. And there was one young person who wrote in that he and his friends were engaging in something that they called uh, reading the Bible at random. So here's how it went. Whenever somebody in the group had a question or something they were wrestling with, they would go through the following procedure. Step one, first they would pray to God that he would reveal to them what it was that they were supposed to do or know. Secondly, then in prayer, they would state their problem out loud and wanted and clearly what the answer that they wanted to it. Third, then, without opening their eyes, one person would start moving their hand through the Bible until it came to a specific page. Then, once they got to that page and they sensed that the Spirit was leading them, they would run their hand across the page and randomly stop on a point. Then they would open their eyes and read the verse out loud. Hmm. So the young man asking the question was saying, I was amazed at how often these verses have something to do with the question we were wrestling with. But he wanted to know, is this a bad practice for Christians to engage in? Well, interestingly enough, it turns out this practice actually has a name that I wasn't familiar with until I'd read about it. The answer said that this kind of thing is called bibliomancy. Bibliomancy apparently is the practice of turning to a place in a holy book under the guidance of the spirits and just looking for wherever it randomly leads you. turns out the practice is actually ancient. we got evidence of Homer and Virgil doing it and a host of other religions. But most people recognize that practice exactly for what it is. It's magic, or what the Bible calls divination. Uh, And it turns the Bible, unfortunately, into this magical book of incantations. Or sort of a sorcerer's spells or something like that. Well, we're looking this summer at this series that we've entitled My Strange Bible, How to Properly Read and Study Scripture. And we come this morning to the broader question of what kind of literature the Bible is. And for many people, if you ask that question, they respond, I think rightly, by saying, Well, the Bible is a guidebook for life. It contains the rules that we're to follow if we want to know how to know God and have eternal life. And of course, I would support that statement. But you'll notice in our passage this morning that we find something curious. The book of Deuteronomy, if you might remember, is a long extended sermon preached by Moses right before the children of Israel are supposed to go into the promised land and Moses himself is going to die. And what he's doing is is he's reminding them of all these things that he told them about uh, during his time among them and saying, look, this is the path in which you should go when you get into the promised land. And So finally, in verse 5, he says, See, I have taught you statutes and rules, as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. There you go, you think. Moses is teaching the Jews the rules, The pattern of life they should order their life by in order to be fulfilled. But notice that there is a relationship between the statutes and what the statutes are trying to make of you, which comes in the very next verse. In other words, the rules are pushing us towards something. Look at verse 6. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the people's. So is the Bible a rule book? It's hard to deny that it's not. I mean, of course, the Bible has all kinds of rules. You get these these great lists, right, of the Ten Commandments and uh, the Sermon on the Mount. But my premise this morning is is that if you treat the Bible as if if it's only a rule book, not only is it going to frustrate you, you're going to miss where the rules are taking you. And when you do, you miss something really important for your life and do oftentimes great harm. In other words, you can have the rules, you can believe the rules, you can even do your best to obey the rules in the Christian life. But if those rules are not leading you to wisdom, then those same rules can actually do more harm than good. How? Well, I want to unpack that question as we start to understand the Bible as wisdom literature under three separate headings. First of all, we want to say the Bible is more than a rule book. We want to say that the Bible is wisdom literature and talk about what that is. And finally, just a couple of words in application of why I think it matters. Okay, first of all, the Bible is more than a rule book. Now granted, the Bible contains rules, but this Deuteronomy passage, like I said, is pushing us towards something that the Bible says is absolutely essential for every believing person to embrace, and that is wisdom. And there's other places in the Bible that dig even deeper into this than Deuteronomy does, not the least of which is the book that's completely committed to imparting wisdom that we call Proverbs. We love the Proverbs, don't we? Because Proverbs are just great. These simple little nuggets of insight like, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he's old, he will not depart from it. And we think to ourselves, that's the kind of clear-headed teaching that I'm looking for. Do this, and out will come well-adjusted children that will live with you in the suburbs, right? It's interesting. We want for the Bible to be these kinds of things, don't we? We long for the Bible just to give me what it is that I'm supposed to do. And the Bible gives it. And I don't want to go too, past, too quickly past that. Because I do think that for our generation, there is something to be said about the Bible's agreement. That reality itself has a pattern. The fabric of reality has, as it were, a grain. There's a grain that when you go along with the grain, you experience blessing. When you turn it around and go against the grain, it splinters up your life. We live in a world today where reality is nothing more than the extension of my desires, my self-will placed upon the world around me, so that even facts like biology do not affect what I really am on the inside. The Bible comes along and says, No, there are things in the universe that are fixed outside of your subjective perception of them. Fixed rules. But people like us, people that will come to church on Sunday mornings, we love these kinds of sayings in Proverbs. Why? Because we're the conservatives. We're the traditional values people. We think to ourselves, you know, if the world would just return to the Bible, or like if we could just get prayer back in school. And of course, with that mindset, we go to the Bible and we like, we just wish that it would give me what it is that I need. Show me the rules. And when I live by them, voila, life will work out great. Now, there are others of you, maybe there are fewer in number perhaps in our group, who listens to stuff like that with their brows furrowed a little bit. Hmm, I don't know about that. These are the cynical among us. These are the people that see the gray where you and I see black and white. And they say to themselves, not so fast there. I've known plenty of people who seemingly have done everything right. They followed the rules as best as they could. And you know what? Their life didn't turn out very good. They failed. The systems failed them. Uh, the structures fell apart. There are no guarantees in life. You usually find these people sort of falling in the more progressive side of the cultural spectrum. But here's what I want to sort of try to blow your mind with a little bit this morning. Because the book of Proverbs contains verses that actually support both postures. Don't believe me? Let me give you a, a couple of quick examples. There are these Proverbs that make these bold statements, for instance, about the, 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 the connection that exists between hard work and prosperity. For instance, Proverbs 10.4. A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. Ah, there it is. I got it. As long as I work hard, I'll always end up on top, I think. so. we love to hear. But then you come to a proverb just three chapters later in Proverbs 13, verse 23, that says this The fallow ground of the poor would yield much food, but it is swept away through injustice. Whoops. The proverb writer is saying, Yes, generally speaking, hard work produces prosperity. But you know what else is true about the world? The world is broken. It's broken and the brokenness oftentimes is going to rear its ugly head and make life seem like there's no pattern to the universe, that the things that are happening to us and around us are random, truly. And so this is the reason why the Bible cannot be simply an answer book. If you go to it just looking for answers as to why your life is turning out the way that it is, and then you turn to Proverbs ten you you'll come away thinking, well, if only I'd worked harder. That'd be your impression. But the truth is there, are inju- there is injustice in the world. There are corrupt bosses. Uh, there, there are bad actors that are there in your life who are out for nothing more than their own gain. And to me, that matters worse. The more you do self-reflection, the more you see I'm part of the problem. I'm making life difficult. I'm creating the same chaos. Do you feel the tension between those? Let me give you another example. Sometimes this is hard to get inside our brains. Let me give you a second example in Proverbs chapter 26, verses 4 and 5. Here you have, I would argue, very well known but seemingly completely contradictory Proverbs. Listen carefully. Verse 4 Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Verse 5. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Hmm, did you catch that? (laughs) Verse 4 basically says this. Look, don't waste your time arguing with a fool. It's not worth the time. And you know what? If you do, you're just going to end up becoming just like him. He's going to suck you right into his foolishness. Now that's sound advice, right? Stop wasting your time, somebody might tell you, arguing with someone. They're not going to get it, no matter how hard you try could be. But then verse 5 says, hey, you better correct that fool on his own terms, because otherwise he's going to live with this, with this crippling self-delusion that he's actually wise when the truth is he's not. So do whatever you have to do to get them a better answer for their life so that they know how their life should go. <laughs> okay, so wait a minute. Well, which is it, Bible? <laughs> Am I supposed to ignore the fool so that I don't get caught in their trap? Or am I supposed to answer them and correct their error? You ever seen two verses contradict themselves that closely together? I had one student ask me one time. Look, this is my point. You have to embrace the fact that the Bible cannot be simply a rule book when you begin to look through it for wisdom. Because if you really honestly think about it, 90% of the questions that face us day in and day out, they're not actually answered by the moral rules, are they? You know. Uh, Where should I send my children to school? Uh, Whom should I marry? Should I make this home purchase? Should I confront my coworker? There is no easy answer to those contained directly in the Ten Commandments or in the Sermon on the Mount or whatever. So there has to be another way to read the Bible that can account for places like Proverbs 26. I was reading a book uh, this summer in preparation for this series called How Not to Read the Bible. It's kind of interesting. I don't endorse everything in it, but I did love one of the chapter titles in this book that was entitled, Never Read a Bible Verse. <laughs> I love that. The point that they were making is, never read only one Bible verse. Because every Bible verse that comes to us comes in a context. Not just a context, literally speaking, in the text itself, but also in a cultural context with a group of people that probably had slightly different priorities than you and I have. In other words, we have to honor the fact that when the Bible speaks, it speaks as a whole and not just sort of as a way of sort of uh, um, proof texting our, just our decisions in life. So my point is if you fail to read the Bible with this kind of pers- perspective, you actually go so far as to actually hurt somebody. I've mentioned here before that uh, years ago, I had a chance to uh, serve Uh, in New York City with the homeless when I was in seminary. And I remember being so surprised at the training of our leadership that was telling us not to give cash to the street people, the homeless people that we were encountering. And of course, in the back of my mind, I was like, seems like that wouldn't be a good idea. But they were saying, no, it's actually cruel to give them to someone who actually doesn't have the life resources internally to know how to be wise with that money. But I remember specifically thinking, but The Bible commands me to be generous to the poor. How could my desire to help these people be hurtful when I can so vividly back it up with scripture? That's the question. And I think that the answer to that question of how to wrestle with that comes from the fact that we just have a wrong view about the Bible. The Bible is not an answer book. Rather, it is wisdom literature. And so we better spend a little time figuring out exactly what we mean by that, which brings me to the second point. Yes, the Bible is more than a rule book, but it's actually wisdom literature. Let's park on that for a second. How do you define wisdom? The definition I heard years ago, I think it stood the test of time. Wisdom is competence regarding the realities of life. In other words, wisdom isn't less than having knowledge But it's really so much more because it's knowing exactly what to do with that knowledge or even better, it's knowing when to use that knowledge. It's not less than God's commands and rules and statutes, but it's so much more. To illustrate this, go back to Proverbs 26, those two contradictory Proverbs. Again, do I answer a fool according to his folly or not? It's a great answer coming from Old Testament scholar Tremper Longman on this question when he says this. And the first sentence is a bit jarring. Bear with me. Proverbs are not universally valid. Their validity depends upon the right time and the right circumstance. These Proverbs, talking about the ones in 26, teach teach that the wise person must, to put it baldly, know what kind of fool he or she is dealing with if this is a fool who will not learn and will simply sap time and energy from the wise person, if though then, don't bother answering. However, if this is a fool who can learn and are not answering will lead to worse problems, then by all means answer. Did you catch that? Because if you're listening, the question then becomes, all right, so wait a minute then, how do I become the kind of person who knows the kinds of fools that I'm dealing with? That's the question. How do I become that person? And here's where I think that Deuteronomy comes in profoundly. We do that because we have immersed ourselves into the pages of Scripture in anticipation of that. Instead of Bible giving us a, God giving us a spiritual manual, think about what he did. God gave us his word in a certain form. And in places that form is literature. Oftentimes it's very artful literature. It comes to us in stories, told, by the way, by fallible human beings with personalities and life experiences that are as varied as the soul who wrote. But not only that, all the while perfectly keeping its infallibility and its inerrancy. That's the the, the miracle that is the Bible. And if you go back even to the central plot of the whole book of the Bible, it's all about the attainment of how to get wise. Remember Adam and Eve in the garden? There was this one tree that they couldn't touch, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't misread that. That did not say that they weren't aware what good and evil was. By eating or not eating the tree, what you were saying was whether or not you were going to decide what was good and evil for yourself or whether you were going to trust God's interpretation of what to do about the tree. You see the point? We've always been wrestling with this path of wisdom. How do I get it? How do I understand it? How do I lead the good life? I heard one theologian put it this way. He said, throughout the book of Proverbs, he said, you'll constantly hear the writer referring as the way of wisdom to the way of wisdom as if it's a path, not a door. He said, you and I want the door. We want to ask God a question and be like, Rip, and there's the answer right there. We've got it. Just like things in my pantry. I just want God to tell me what he wants to do, we say. Which, by the way, have you ever probed into that question? Because so often we say that because we're hoping that God will tell us what he wants us to do so that I can get what I want. It's always interesting. But God doesn't dispense wisdom through the open door. Rather, it comes as you walk a path. The way of wisdom, as Proverbs and the rest of Scripture is leading us, is through a thousand little mini-insights and little mini-decisions that take place day in and day out so that eventually, when you become someone who finds himself immersed in the story of Scripture, you find yourself becoming wise. Wisdom is a path. It's not a door. What really makes you who you are, according to the Bible, who you become Is basically a product of how you do these tiny microscopic things all day long. The basic disciplines of life determine if you become a wise person. It's very rarely to be found in the big earth-shattering dramatic things. So the way of wisdom is a pathway and we become wise by being people who assume this certain set of daily, weekly, yearly, repeated disciplines. Which will let you know exactly why it was that when God was instructing a people, remember how he gave them a bunch of of, uh, feast days and holidays and celebrations? Why? Because he wanted them to be regularly in touch with the realities of life. And when we choose other paths, we end up hurting ourselves. There was a a Bible teacher who um, uh, insisted that I go back and read a story that I I picked up uh, many years ago about a man who had landed himself in jail uh, for a hit-and-run accident that he had committed. Uh, It's a horrible story. Apparently, he was driving home late one night and struck a child who ran out in front of him. Well, he was so distraught at the scene uh, that he fled and, after going through the trial, was jailed because of it. Well, uh, with all the time in the world to think about what he had done, he began to look back on his life and tried to figure out how he got there. What happened? How did this happen to me? And as he looked back, he said he fixated on a certain memory that he had as a child, where he went into his father's bedroom and began to play with his father's favorite watch. It was a big mistake because circumstances would have it. He dropped the watch and broke it. Well, when his father came home, predictably, he blew off into a rage and began to march around the house demanding to know who it was that actually broke the watch. And what this older man said, so many years afterwards said, he said, what I did was I retreated back into my room and I insisted to my father that I had not done it. And you want to know what happened? It worked. And he said, in that one small little tiny lie, I learned a way of dealing with my life. And what I began to find out was, it wasn't just that I got out of that one sticky situation. Listen to what he says. He says, from that point on, I began to become the kind of man who manipulated the circumstances around me, who bent the truth, who ran from responsibilities. He said, I didn't start my life as a hit-and-run killer, but I was on that trajectory after the tiny decision that I made that day and a thousand little mundane choices since then. That's the path of wisdom. The path of wisdom leads us into a place where we soak ourselves in the principles of Scripture, yes, but eventually it's trying to make me into someone who knows how to deal with life's realities. Okay, thirdly and finally, why in the world would this matter? <laughs> Good grief. I don't know how to tell you how much it matters. I have not, I'm haven't. not sure if you've noticed, but we have a culture around us that is rapidly and painfully polarizing. We are moving further and further away to having more that unites us than that which divides us culturally and socially. Can anybody deny that that's true? As politics becomes our national obsession and the culture uh, culture wars are only getting worse as we continue to talk about them. And I gotta be honest with you, I am wired in such a way that I would love to ignore all that stuff uh, and just kind of tend my own fire right here in Oxford, Mississippi. But what I'm finding is, is that these questions are persistent. And what I'm finding is is there are contradictions even in my own soul, or at least contradictions that few people know how to hold together. And you're right, I'm not even sure I know how to hold them together. I'm going to give you an example that I hesitate to even mention. How is it, I'm using my words carefully, how can I live in Oxford, Mississippi, and say, on the one hand, that I wholeheartedly believe that same sex attraction Uh, Relationships based upon same sex attraction is contrary to God's design for human sexual flourishing. And further, when someone adopts an identity based upon those sexual attractions, they actually bring positive harm to their own souls and the sensibilities of those who live with them around them. And I think to myself, having said that, will there be protests next week? Will we be able to walk through a picket line maybe next week at church? I don't know. How can I hold that on the one hand and equally say, how can I live in Oxford and also believe that there is never an excuse to deny another person created in the image of God the rights that are afforded to them as by the good laws of this land, to live free from harassment and bullying as full and free citizens in this society do all of the dignity that we should extend to every one of God's creatures. How can I hold that one as well? Maybe, maybe, who knows who I've infuriated with that. Maybe I'll get a pink slip this week and not have a job next week. Who knows who'll be here next week. But do you feel that? I've started trying to think of examples. And I picked this one because it was Pride Month in June. It's a thousand different things in which we look and say, I, I, I don't know how to hold these together. Where is God leading us? How do we, how do we live in Babylon? as our culture secularizes. I don't know, but I do think that there's something interesting about the fact that Christians so often would rather have a seminar with an expert, oftentimes, rather than a small group where we just work through the Bible, patiently, over time, especially when it's messy and when it's difficult not just so that, we're, so that we're not simply imbibing the world's education and values while we formally keep a set of rules that are kind of we're the only ones that are comfortable with, but nor also trying to get out of Christian ghettos where we're sort of disengaged from the culture. We can't do either of those. How do I know what to do? Answer, I don't know. But only as we are immersed in the pages of Scripture are we going to be able to be wise. Because here's the, here's the final point, and really the most important one. Because the truth of the matter is, that does not come by mastering the rules. <laughs> it comes as we begin to get to know the personification of wisdom. I would make an argument that the most impactful things in your life, if you look back, was not a set of principles to live by, but rather it was a person. Maybe it was a parent it was a sibling. Maybe it was a friend at school. It was the person that impacted you. And this is what I love about this. Because oftentimes we go to the Bible and we're like, I just wish that God would have given me, why didn't he give me an airtight argument about his existence? How do I know he's there? I would need an airtight argument for the existence of God. God did not give us an airtight argument. He gave us an airtight person that Jesus comes along, and what the Bible begins to say about him as these disciples interact with him, and they're like, my goodness, he's got all this insight. He's got all this understanding. He's leading us in this totally different path, and then he gave us his life. Eventually, they came along to say, this was the personification of wisdom. We had wisdom alive in front of us. We walked with him, and it led the Apostle Paul to say things like this in 1 Corinthians 1. He says, where is the one who's wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Jews demand a sign. Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Did you catch that? Jesus is the wisdom of God. And the understanding is, that. and does he have rules? He sure does. Lots. But the understanding is, as I grow closer to him, I realize that there's a thousand different questions. I got it after the first service. Two of you came up to me and was like, ah, what do I do about this and this? And I was like, I don't know. But I do know this. That every Christian's first instinct, I'll be like, I don't know. Go consult Jesus about that. He gave you his word. He gave you the body of believers. He has his Holy Spirit whereby he brings things to mind and to light. you got to talk to him about this first. The personification of wisdom. Seeing and drawing near to Jesus as the one who is the essence of wisdom is the only hope for our world not to descend into foolishness. I'm not talking about America. I'm talking about what's right here between these two ears. My world, not to descend into foolishness. In other words, in the end of this, we want to find Him, and if Scripture is leading me elsewhere, then I've misread it. The Bible's wisdom literature. Let's pray, Lord Jesus. You're going to have to lead us into that because, to the degree that your Bible is wisdom, we are fools, and that means that we strain out a lot of the things that you would have for us. So we ask that you would give us the grace this morning, maybe even as we sing, to draw near to you that our singing would not just be done to the person sitting next to us or in front of us, but it would be to you, that you would take delight in it, that you would take joy in it, that it would be something that would be used to draw near so that we know you better. Would you do that? Father, we ask for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.